It says in verse 1 of Revelation 19, After these things. Now, what were the things we just talked about last week? We saw the destruction of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the dragon, the serpent of old's kingdom called Babylon. And uh, we're getting quite a bit of echo here. You guys hear that? Okay. And uh, so we first saw the destruction of his religious kingdom. And of course, we could go back in Daniel. It's a mixture of Judaism, paganism. But then at the very end, Satan is not happy with any of it. He wants all the praise to go directly to him. And he sort of works on destroying his own um, religious kingdom. And then we also see after that, the economic kingdom is destroyed. And this is by God's hand. And, and they're marveling. Now, it's interesting. It's the end of the seven-year tribulation period. And if you know about that, you know that there's been quite a bit of bowls of God's judgment pouring upon. But evidently, Babylon and that area, Iraq today, Nazaria, Iraq today, um, all the way down to, to Kuwait there. And um, it was uh, not diminished like the rest of the world. And it was just a wealthy, wealthy kingdom like no other. And, and the Lord destroyed that as well. And then we know there's one other part of Satan's kingdom, and that is his military. Now, remember, the Antichrist kingdom starts out of rebuilding the Roman Empire. From that comes an economic system. From that comes a military system, eventually a religious system, which starts in Jerusalem but has its heyday in Babylon. Then the economic system moves to Babylon. But the military is working throughout the world, but without going into all the prophecies in Ezekiel, it quickly begins to fall apart. Remember the Roman Empire that is revived is the feet of iron mixed with clay. Incredibly strong in some ways, incredibly weak in other ways. And as we all work our way through, they, we, we see that this military that the man of lawlessness this emperor of the world put together is beginning to attack the places that are rebelling against him but he's losing finally as they begin to head off into africa they lose horribly they hear that china is coming up they turn around and they all come together all the armies of the world come together in a final battle in what's called the Jezreel Valley of Israel today, uh, traditionally known as that Battle of Armageddon. And so before that battle, before the destruction of the military kingdom, this is where we're at tonight, but after the religious destruction and the economic destruction of Babylon, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. You, you, you ever say, where am I in the Bible? Here you go. There you are, right there. All the believers that have been raptured, we're up in heaven right here. And we're saying, Alleluia. Now you say, isn't Alleluia supposed to have an H in front of it? Hallelujah. 
It just depends if you're translating from the Hebrew or the Greek. In the Hebrew, the Old Testament, it'll have with an H. Hallelujah. But in the Greek, the H, it doesn't exist. It's just hallelujah. But either way, it's, it's a word that really has no earthly significance. It is such a deep worship and praise to God. They do not believe we are really going to be able to say hallelujah and get the significance of it until we are saying it before the throne of God. And it expresses a deep worship that man can't really explain in these human bodies. And this goes on to say salvation, glory, honor, power belong to the Lord our God. I'll tell you what, nobody can save me but Jesus. I, 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 am, I am complete lost cause, you know. I, I know there's, I can't save myself. I know there's no group of men that can put this Humpty Dumpty back together again. I know there's no church that can save me. It is only through the work of God and Jesus willing to take all my sin upon him, which was about half of the world's sins. And he was punished and paid for the penalty of my sins. So when the Father looks at me, he can see me as righteous as Jesus is righteous. We're saved. It's, it's a miracle that our hard, stubborn hearts have just humbled and said, God, I am a sinner. That's, that's a miracle of miracle of miracles. And then to say, I want to keep following you, even though we're stumbling and, and, and we're, we're failing, we're just struggling in many ways in this old flesh and this world system and, and the devil, it's just pushing us in every direction, but into righteousness of Christ. And to realize one day, even though all these odds are stacked against us, there is someone that has a hold of us the whole time that would never let us go. And where our sins abound, his grace abounded more. The righteous man falls seven times. Don't you think that he wouldn't be called a righteous man if he fell seven times? He's saying the most righteous among us, we still fall. Not once, not twice. Number seven is number of perfection, completion. It's like, it's a continuous thing. We all fall short continuously of the glory of God. We all have sinned, but we are continuously, even as born-again believers, falling short of the glory that God has for our life and a perfect righteousness. C.S. Lewis said, if our hearts long for a righteousness, a closeness with God that cannot be fulfilled on this world, it must be because we now belong to a different world. I love that. 
We, we belong to a different world as born-again believers. We're no longer citizens of this planet. We feel it in our spirit that I should be out of this sinful body, out of this sinful world, away from everything that grieves God and, and to be in his presence. But right here, guys, hang in there. The Lord has already seen us there, as it says in Ephesians 2, seated together with him in heavenly places. And when we are there, it's going to be so evident to us. Couldn't save myself. World couldn't save me. People couldn't save me. My parents couldn't save me. The people I love the most couldn't save me. The church can't save me. It was you, Lord, and to you be all glory and honor and power forever and ever. And we will understand the significance of that time. We will say hallelujah and we'll understand it. And it'll go deep into our souls. And in verse 2, he says, For true and righteous are his judgments. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth. That's a destruction of the religious empire we talked about in chapter 17. And so he judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. The chapters before, um, this whole system was just killing all believers in that tribulation period. And again, they said, what? Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. The, the, the power of God destroying that wicked religious system that's been going on since the Garden of Eden is gone. And then the 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. These 24 creatures, I, these 24 elders, I'm not sure exactly who they will be. We saw them earlier taking their crowns and throwing them before the glassy sea. And here they are again leading everyone else in this worship. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. I, I'd like to know who this is. It's coming from the throne. But as you look at it, it doesn't seem that it would be the Father or Jesus speaking it. In a minute, he's going to say we all will be on the throne with Christ. I, I think this might be one of the archangels, Gabriel or Michael, or maybe it's King David. I don't know, but it's a clear voice. It's coming from the direction of the throne, and it's saying, praise our God, all you his servants, those who fear him, both small and great. I heard, as it were, the voice of great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God omnipotent, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. To her it has been granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean, bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so he says, guys, understand what God has done for us and, and everyone, the least in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, has this incredible desire to honor and give him glory and praise like it's a thunder. It's interesting in C.S.'s Lewis book, uh, The Great Divorce, he, he actually does something rather interesting where 
He says, you know, what if people in hell could take a bus ride for a day trip to heaven? And so they get on the bus in hell and they're, they're heading off to heaven. To make a long story short, they can't stand heaven. They can't stand everybody being so righteous. And then all of us just want to give glory and honor to Jesus and worship him and sing to him. And it, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to them. It just They're begging to go back to hell and get as far away as they can from such a sight and such a, a, a hearing of the praise to Jesus. It's quite interesting that it will be our delight. We won't be able to sing loud enough. Charles Spurgeon said, I am quite certain I will be probably the least in the kingdom of heaven. I will be on the back row of the afterglow, but everyone will know I'm there, for none will be singing so loud and thankful as I. I think that's powerful because we see this great worship of many waters, like a down at the, if you ever been up to Yosemite at the bottom of Bridalville uh, waterfalls, have you ever been there? You climb up there, it's just, you can't hear. You can try to scream at the person next to you. It's such a powerful thing happening. But then we see that it's finally coming, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the temptation here is to stop and do a whole sermon on the marriage the Jewish marriage and so many verses in the gospel, so many things that have been said in the Bible make sense when you understand the Jewish wedding, but I'm not gonna do that tonight. But the one thing that does precede the wedding is that the guy getting married would go to his father's house and to begin to build a bridal chamber. Because you see in the Jewish culture, the first year you don't work, you spend the whole year on a honeymoon. If a war comes, you don't go to war. You just enjoy being married. And so you got to build a honeymoon suite, uh, you know, a granny flat, but for your honeymoon in, in the, on the farm. And then um, he comes and grabs his bride when the father gives him permission. So him and his groomsmen are hanging out at the house. And one day or night, usually at three in the morning, the dad will say, go get her. And they start blowing trumpets and banging pans. And, and she's there with her bridesmaids. And they say, turn up the lantern. And, and he swoops in and grabs her and takes her off. And they have a seven-day marriage feast. This is what's going on here. The, ra the rapture of the church has come. It's a seven-year tribulation on the earth, but it's a seven-year wedding feast in heaven. And now the end of those seven years has come, and the bride is now there ready to begin her time with her husband. And so they said, there you are, and there she is. And it says right there, she's clean and bright with fine linen and righteous acts of the saints. Again, like Adam and Eve, God could just say, look, one thing, and that's it, to maintain living in this beautiful garden forever, 
out of all the multi-millions of different fruits and trees on the earth, this one tree, don't eat from it. That's it. And you're good to go. Now, you would think that that is such a simple rule. That is such a simple thing that anybody can do that, right? But there's showing the nature of man. If there's a way to screw it up, we will. (laughs) No matter how insignificant or minute the sin might be, we will fall. And so, in Ephesians 5, it tells us that our husband washes us and cleans us with the water of the word that he might present us without spot or blemish or any such thing. Jesus makes it clear, apart from me, you cannot bear good fruit, or let me say, do righteous acts. But as his spirit lives in us, 2 Corinthians 5 says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness, sort of like somebody else in heaven, right? No, he says that we would become as right the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that amazing? That we're going to be standing side by side with Jesus and his righteousness, symbolic in a white robe, whiter than anything on earth can get it. And then you look at our righteousness. It's identical to Jesus's. And so he's made us righteous in our spirit. We can get rid of these bodies, get into our new bodies. We'll live righteously forever. But now it's a, it's a, it's a struggle. We got to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's, a, it's something we got to purpose and repurpose in our heart every day to, to, to give our bodies as a living, holy sacrifice unto God. But by his grace, by the power of his spirit, through the cleansing of his word, we bear fruit. And now he's going to bless us and, and, and give us rewards as if we had done it. I remember when my boys were little, you know, four, five, six, and it's like, hey, I'll take the groceries on dad. And they would get the bag, and of course, they couldn't even lift it up high enough. And I'm like, yeah, you get that side, I'll get this side. And of course, they're not lifting any of it. I'm lifting all the way, but they're trucking along with me, and there it is, mom, I brought that one for you, you know. We're going to go get another one. They thought they were so strong. They thought they were doing it. When in reality, they were just sort of being dragged along by a much stronger arm. In the same way, as we come with Christ, he is, by his grace and power, by his spirit, he is helping us be a part of the righteous acts. And then he credits it to us as if we have done it. And so... He goes on to say in verse 9, he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the married supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. It's going to be hard to understand and imagine how blessed we are that we have been called unto Christ for salvation. 
you know, you're not going to really get it until we get to the end of verse chapter 20 here, but I can't hold it any longer. I got to tell you. Because life as we know it right now is going to end with a rapture. It's going to be a snare on all those who are left behind because planes will not be piloted. Surgeons will disappear in the middle of the operations. The brain trust that understands the water system and the power grid and all of these things that we're going to find believers. Um, we're in California. No, we're not going to lose that many. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> I, I, try, I try to behave. Now, in Texas, they're going to lose a lot of people there. Um, but um, at that time, it is going to begin a seven-year tribulation period. And at the end of that seven years, we're going to come back with Christ to this earth. And the Lord's going to give the earth a facelift of some degree. And we are going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. Now, during that thousand years, we're in our new bodies, and we are either kings and priests unto God or a kingdom of priests unto God, depending on how you translate Revelation 1.6. But we are ruling and reigning with Christ on the earth. And the people that have made it through the tribulation period begin to repopulate the earth, sort of like a Garden of Eden story, if you would, for a thousand years. And if you go back to notes in Genesis, you know from Adam and Eve a thousand years, if everybody had four children, you end up with almost 10 billion people if you don't have diseases and so forth happening like they are today. So in that thousand years, it, there'll probably be billions of people on the earth again. But we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ. It says in Psalms 2, if they even think to do evil, they'll be punished. <laughs> so man is walking righteously. And of course, everybody in politics are in their brand new bodies, <laughs> us. So it will be governed by Christ and all of us in our brand new bodies that have been with Christ. But after a thousand years of Jesus every day teaching Bible schools, or teaching Bible studies. People from all over the world, there'll be a highway system. You can get to Jerusalem and listen to Jesus teach. Angels round about us. After a thousand years with Jesus himself teaching us, with righteous leaders leading us, he releases Satan. And Satan has a chance to tell man they don't have to follow Jesus anymore, they can follow him. And you would think after living a thousand years on a perfect earth, seeing Jesus, hearing Jesus being taught, the earth being covered with his teachings and his ways and his righteousness. But what does man do? A multitude, a multitude of people just go, yeah. I don't want to follow this Jesus. I don't want to live on this righteous earth. It's making me sick. And they side with Satan. And there is a final battle. Us who have followed Christ, chosen Christ against those who have sided with Satan. Now you would have thought, man, 
living for a thousand years, being taught for hundreds of years by Jesus himself. Well, who's the mayor of your city? Elijah. Oh, who's the governor of your state? Moses. Who's the president of your country? King David. Man, you, you would just think not one person would want to listen to the devil, but guys, there is a huge percentage of people. What is it showing? It shows us the nature of our sinfulness. Now, just stop and think about this a minute. That's how stubborn you and I are. And here we are now in this sinful world, not a millennial reign. I mean, we don't have King David, we have Jerry Brown. I don't know how you get more opposite than that. But we're in these sinful bodies, and, and here it is, we are saying, Jesus, I not only want you, but I'm going to continue to choose you every day. And to realize what a miracle that is, guys, that our stubborn hearts, to that degree, God has got a hold of us, and we are submitted to him. And we're going to realize that at that end of millennial period, we're going to go, wow, these guys who lived the millennial reign with Christ on the earth, their hearts were not submitted to him. How was my evil heart ever submitted to God? Man, oh man, God, what a miracle, a miracle of miracles you've done, causing my prideful, rebellious, wicked, sinful heart to be yielded to you. And so he is saying, guys, do you understand how blessed we are in this married supper of the Lamb? And he said, this, this is a true saying. Everything Christ has said is true. And of course, since the beginning of, of time, Satan has been lying. And all his lying doctrines and all these lying people constantly saying, did God really say, no, you shall not die? Oh, you know, constantly saying uh, how the Lord and what he said is, is tainted or weird or wrong or unethical or immoral or unfaithful. And, and, and we have to keep hearing it. And one of the signs of the last days, Peter tells us, is that people are going to say, ah, you have heard the Lord's coming back forever. That's one of the signs of the times, people saying things have always been the same since the beginning of creation till now. I have no evidence where God's anywhere evident. I don't see, I, don't, I mean, I can look at human history and I don't see God in it anywhere. If he was, he's dead. If he is, he's somewhere else taking a break. There's no evidence. This is the lying tongue, but now... We are there, as the Bible said, now it is actually happening in the moment. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So in that moment when John was seeing all of us, 
as the bride of Christ in our righteousness, getting rewarded for our righteousnesses and understanding what it meant to be the bride of Christ as the New Testament church and, and as all the believers throughout time that have believed in him and are now before him. And, and, and the, he's saying, wow, you're blessed. Do you get it? And John is like, I'm trying. <laughs> this is so magnificent. There aren't words to explain it. Do you remember when Paul, in 2 Corinthians 12, at the end of chapter 11, he, he says, in the body, out of the body? I, I don't know. <laughs> All I know is I, I was there, and I don't know if it was me. I know a man. I'm not even sure if it happened to me or not. As he goes on, it was Paul. It did happen to him, but it was so unbelievable. He couldn't process it with human, tech, with human wordage and human experiences. There was no human equivalent to it. And he finally had to say, yeah, you know, I saw it, and I can't tell you one thing about it, because if I tried to describe one thing I saw in that heavenly experience, it would be like cursing. One human word to try to explain heaven would be just, it would just be wicked of me to even try. I, I can't do it. And so here's John seeing it, trying to process it. And man, God gave him great grace to put a lot of it down in this book. But he is just overcome. And, and he, he just, this, this angel that has showed him these things, he's just so thankful and in his heart, you know, it, John would later write in 1 John, he says, little children, I don't know exactly what we're going to be like, even though I've seen some revelation, but I do know this, that when we see him, we will be like him, and more importantly, those who meditate on that question will cause themselves to be pure, even as Jesus is pure. Why? Because Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And instead of you being overcome, he's saying, John, by, by the experience of these heavenly things, let them draw you closer to Jesus. You seeing these heavenly pictures of the church and the bride, it just should cause you to say, I want to draw near to Jesus. I want to walk more obedient to Jesus. I want to store up more treasure in heaven. I want to live for Christ more than I've ever lived for him before. But John's emotions were sort of out of whack. He was overwhelmed. And, and, and he, this angel has to you know, scold him saying, yes, I, it's not about me, it's not about, it's about Jesus. And so all of these emotions you're having, let it draw you closer unto Jesus. And in verse 11, now I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, his head were many crowns, he had the name written on it that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us, guys. We're going to be up there at this marriage supper. We're going to finish the wedding, and then we're going to go for a ride with Jesus through the sky. 
I mean, I, I think that's going to be amazing. We're going to be popping out of some realm where heaven is, and we're going to be on white horses flying through the sky with Christ. <laughs> And we're going to come and land on the Mount of Olives. So if you haven't had an Israel trip, you will definitely have one with Jesus as your tour guide. And then it goes on to say, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath almighty. And so we see Jesus coming not as the meek and mild servant on the donkey coming down the hill and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed he's come to the name of the Lord. But now he is coming in his second coming. And you say, hold it, I, I thought the rapture was the second coming. We say that sometimes in our terminology, but actually the rapture is where we go to, in the, to be with him. He comes to snatch us away, but his second coming to the earth is right here where he'll land on the Mount of Olives and it'll split in two. But in Thessalonians, it, Paul says when Christ comes, it will be from the breath of his mouth. Here it says from the sword of his mouth. What is it? It's the word of God. It's the truth. You know, we say the truth of God. The word of God is like a two-edged sword. Spiritually, it's just going to come and just cut away in a spiritual way that I can't explain. But it's just going to slice right through all the lies and all the darkness and everybody who is, is following anything but the truth. And it's physically destroying him, but spiritually it's destroying that wicked world. And it's by the sword of his mouth that he does this. He comes down, and on him, he's covered in blood. It's a picture of a, a trained soldier, you know. When a soldier would go to his fifth battle, he would put on his battle gear, right? And what's all over that? <laughs> Stained blood from previous battles. A clear sign of a, a trained and an experienced soldier. This is what we see with Jesus. He's coming down and, and it says faithful and true. He's, he, everything Christ has said is true. Satan has called him a liar from the beginning. Men have constantly said, it can't be true. I don't believe there's a God. If there is a God, I hate him. My child died and how could I want a God that would let my child, you know, on and on and on. And I say, let God be found true and every man a liar. And he's going to come with that sword. And there's a name. I don't know what it is, but it has something to do with his judgment and his wrath against sin. Now, I just want to stop here and give you an analogy to understand, as many people try to say, God is just the God of love. That's it. God is love. That's so much who God is that really, if you don't know much about him after that, it's sort of insignificant. And then, of course, those who want to say all religions are the right way, they'll say every religious system that's right will just have a bunch of loving people, tolerant people at the top. And that's God. He's just this incredibly tolerant, loving guy. That's basically all there is. But let me explain to you. In order to have love, you have to have perfect justice and then judgment 
to bring about that justice. If you don't have it, you can't have love at all. Let me give you an analogy. Your daughter, sister, wife, mother was kidnapped by a serial killer, taken, abused, finally chopped up and killed. And they, after several months, find the guy. Positive, they have the right guy. And after a couple of years, they bring him to court, and there you are with all your family. And there the prosecutor begins to give the details. He snatched them off the street, and he took them, and for months in a cellar, and he goes on, and then finally he killed him and chopped him up, and, and, and this man needs to be put to death, or life in prison, or I don't know. And then his defense attorney gets up and says, Your Honor, and I would like to present the other side here. <laughs> and the judge says, Stop. Stop just a minute. Sir, prosecutor, I, I believe everything you said. I think you're probably right. You got the right guy. But understand, and there's a big giant stamp of love, you know, on, on the wall behind him. He goes, this courtroom is a courtroom about love, and it's all you need to know is love. There is nothing more. And what I am looking at at this man is just love for him. And so, sir, even though you probably did do this, since I only have one gear, and that's love, I love you. You're free. You can leave now and, and, and go back onto the streets of the city here and live the rest of your life in the name of love. Now, how are you going to feel about that, guys? Are you going to feel the love from that judge? Or are you going to say that that judge is evil? That judge is wicked. That judge is doing harm to a society. Do you, do you understand? If he does not bring justice and judgment, he's not loving everyone else in the world. And so in the same way, in order for there to have mercy and grace even exist, there has to be truth. There has to be punishment. There has to be judgment. There has to be a judgment that fits the crime, a punishment that fits the crime. It's proven that when a society begins to lacken its punishment against crime, that crime will increase. If you don't have a punishment that fits the crime, then people will do the crime. But in essence, what's happening is that we have no idea what true justice is anymore. We can't even imagine. And even if that guy, after such horrible, you know, this is his 30th person he's killed and done this to, and you send some to death, you feel pretty much like you didn't really get 
your justice, do you? He killed 30 people and tortured him for months, and all we do is shoot him or hang him or put him in a gas chamber, whatever we do. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like we're going to be satisfied with justice. And this is where God says judgment is his. Jesus said, the Father desires that all men would honor the Son as they honor the Father. Therefore, all judgment the Father has given unto the Son that all men would honor him in the same way they would honor the Father. And Jesus makes it clear, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He wasn't saying that politically. He's saying there is going to be a day that 100% of all of us are going to leave these earthly bodies, and we are going to be, at that point, given an eternal body, one made in the righteousness of Christ for eternity, are one prepared to exist forever and ever in the lake of fire. Well, that seems a little harsh. I think it just should annihilate everybody. Guys, we see in part. We know in part. God's ways are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. And we see a sin against another human. We don't understand what it is to sin against our holy creator. But when we see him, we will know that faithful and true are his judgments. And upon that name that we cannot see right now, we will see what true equitable justice really is. And I think we're gonna be amazed what it looks like. It looks gonna look like something that we probably never even calculated up in our own human minds. Well, then he has on his robe and on his thigh that name, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, come together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horses and against his army. So all the armies of the earth are fighting against one another in that Armageddon, in that Jezreel Valley, that valley of Ar that battle of Armageddon, and they're destroying each other, and then Jesus shows up. So he lands us on the Mount of Olives. We all land there in Jerusalem with him. But then he takes off to the Jezreel Valley, and when he comes up there, his soldier uniform, stained with blood. The name, King of kings and Lord of lords, faithful and true, a name written that no one can understand. And they see Jesus, they unite together. They quit warring with each other and they're united over their hatred of Christ. And so all the armies of the earth start fighting against Jesus and he slays them all with the sword of his mouth, with the breath of that word. And then another meal is offered, this time to the birds of the earth to come and eat up all this flesh down in that Jezreel Valley. And so the earth birds gather together and have a feast there. And then um, 
In verse 20, the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who was worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Well, that brings us as far as we are going to come tonight. But man, chapter 20 is going to finish this off where we're going to see, finally, the devil and all of those who have, as I like the way he says it in Peter, those who have been unwilling, or excuse me, Thessalonians, he says, those who are unwilling to believe the love of the truth. Um... They will be there forever and ever, separated from God in that lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And then we will look at that thousand-year millennial reign. And then in chapter 21, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And so, Lord, we come before you tonight as we go line upon line, precept upon precept. And we realize, Lord, there is no one that could save us. God alone could save us. The Father had it right, Jesus, when you cried out in the garden, Father, there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And we realized there was no other way. As the apostle said, there's only one name under heaven in which men can be saved. There's only one that could be the perfect, righteous Lamb of God that could take away the sin of the world. And it was you, Jesus, willing to come into human flesh so that what you would do would be for man and that you came as God in spirit so that what you did would be for all men for all times. And Lord, we realize tonight that we're here in the middle of the week, here in a Bible study, that it is a miracle of miracles that we're hungering for you, that we're hungering for your word that we want to be strengthened in our inner man to live a holy, righteous, obedient life and to work works of righteousness. We realize, as John did when he saw this, we're just sort of overcome that very, very soon this will not be a story we have read about, but we will be side by side looking at each other going, wow. What we studied in church is happening. True and faithful are you. Every word you said was true. Man lied. The devil lied. The world and its system pushed against us, telling us we are all fools for being Christians, for reading our Bibles, for praying, for living for you. They constantly tormented us and, and even on the best days made us feel like idiots for wanting to go to church and follow you, Jesus, and live for you. But on that day, when we see ourselves and we realize how blessed we are, that moment in time that human beings will never have been more blessed than ever when they're not just in heaven, but we are the actual bride of Christ forever and ever and ever, sitting upon the throne with you, Lord, for eternity, we thank you. Wash us now in the water of your word strengthen us through the words of this prophecy and pour your blessing upon each of us in Jesus name and everyone said amen amen, amen.